first scripture this morning is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk for the valley of the shadow of death, I will, fear no, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, our second scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Um, I believe it's verses uh, 11 through 20, isn't it? Ah, see, I'm just making stuff up. 22 through 30. So that's John 11, 22 through 30. At the time the festival, at the time the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. The Word of God for the people of God. Your next scripture reading today is going to be from the book of Exodus, chapter 2. We're going to read the first 10 verses of Exodus, chapter 2. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married, and the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she saw that he was a special baby, and she kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. And she put the baby in a basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the river bank. And when the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maids to go get it for her. And when the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. And then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find you a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, please do this, the princess replied. So the girl went out and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her own baby home and nursed him. And later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as his, as her own, and the princess named him Moses, for she exclaimed, I lifted him out of the water. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The story we read this mo morning is one we all know all too well, right? It's the story of the birth of Moses. We learned this in Sunday school very early, um, very small. We know this story. It's of how Moses was born into a turbulent time, and then God saved him from genocide, and he raised him up. Moses went on to lead a people, to be a prolific influencer, to change the course of Jewish history, and tradition. 
But as with most people that are successful, as with most people that change the world, Moses didn't do so in a vacuum. Moses didn't get to this place on his own, and Moses was not completely independent on his journey. So in normal Mother's Day fashion, I would like to talk to everybody this morning about the women that influenced the life of Moses. Some of the women I'm going to mention you know by name. Some of them you probably have never heard of. But all four of these women we're going to talk about this moment, without them, we wouldn't know the name of Moses. Without them, we wouldn't know Moses at all. So first and foremost, I wanted to talk to you guys about Shipra and Pua. Please raise your hand if you've ever sat through a Sunday school lesson from Shipra and Pua. No? Nobody? How many of you ever heard of Shipra and Pua? Yeah, there we go, Maxine, Sarah, some of us. So we don't really talk about Shipra and Pua too much. Now, I just read from Exodus 2, but these ladies, well, they show up at the end of Exodus 1 before we get to our Moses point. Basically, this is a story of Jewish midwives. And they were asked by the king, the king came up to them and they said, see, I, I'm seeing we have a problem. We have a problem with these Jewish people. And so what I want you to do, the king speaking to the midwives, what I want you to do, midwives, is I want you to deliver these children. If you see that it is a girl, keep the child. And if you see if it is a boy, we will dispose of them. And so Shipra and Pua heard this, and they immediately began to hatch a plan to circumvent this idea, right? Because Shipra and Pua were not down with this at all. And so they told the king later, this is how they thought it up in their heads, these Hebrew women. They said, you know what? Hebrew women give birth really fast. It's not like the Egyptian women that take forever. We might not make it. We might not make it in time. We won't be good at this. I don't know that we can make it to deliver all of these Hebrew children, and so this was their best plan. It was their best thing they had. And so they came to the king and said, we'll do our best to enact your plan of mass murder, but we might not be good at it, right? That is what Shipra and Pua wanted the king to know at that point. So what the midwives were doing in this story is essentially they were doing what was right and what was good and what was holy. But also what they were doing is that they were providing a path for Moses. They were providing a path for the story of Moses to be able to unfold. For the last several millennia, there have been women who have fought tirelessly to give me the ability to stand before you today. In a book called Save from Silence, actually written by Corey's homiletics professor, Reverend Mary Lynn Hudson, she details this ministerial call um, from women starting from the early church through the Middle Ages to the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. It's a fascinating book on the lineage of ministerial women in the church. One of these women, Lucretia Mott, was a Quaker minister from Philadelphia in the mid-1800s. In 1840, which for those of you to recapture history, it's a solid 20 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, Reverend Mott traveled to London to be a delegate at the world's anti-slavery convention, where she was not actually even allowed to be seated and was not allowed to speak, but she went anyway, and she spoke anyway. 
While in London, Reverend Mott, after being pushed out of the convention, went to numerous churches to preach. And she felt extreme pushback, not because of her message, but because of her gender. She eventually came back to the States and advocated for equal rights, both for women in the church and in the public square. Reverend Mott died in 1880, which is 40 years before women in this country were given the right to vote, and is 60 years before most mainline churches ever ordained women officially in the United States. Although she was able to see the fruition of some of her work, like abolition, she was unable to see women function in freedom in her lifetime. So her work was essentially for us. Her work was for me and for you, just like Shipra and Pua provided a path for Moses. Reverend Mott provided a path for ministers like me, for women like you and me. None of these women were inherently extraordinary or special, but they just decided that the status quo was unacceptable. They decided that doing what was right was important. And in doing so, they provided a path for the next generation, which they deemed a necessity. And that is mothering. It's mothering people we will never meet. Before Moses' life even began, he had the midwives protecting him. But as he took his first breath, well, then Moses had Jochebed. I've heard stories of Jochebed for years, and she has been, Jochebed is Moses' mother. Um, Jochebed is, I don't think we named her in that text. She gets named, I think, two chapters later. But he, she is Moses' mother, and I've heard her held up for years as quintessential motherhood. Have anybody else ever heard that? I've heard her just lifted up and her numerous sermons on her motherhood in my lifetime, actually. I've heard sermons about how she had him and she hid him and then, you know, she held him and all these things. I've heard sermons of Jochebed. But that's not exactly what I read when I read that text. I don't see quintessential motherhood. I just see a mother doing what she had to do. Was it brave? Absolutely. But if motherhood is anything, it's courageous, right? When I was a younger mother, when Eden was fairly young, around three or four, I had a friend who had a son that was not much older than Eden. And she came up to me and she said, you know what, I think we really should read this parenting book together. Um, she said, I feel like I'm just not doing good on this parenting front. I am drowning in motherhood. And we sh I just find it to be very difficult. And we need to read this book together. And she's a very dear friend. But if I could be my most honest this morning, which is probably also my most arrogant, I thought, what on earth are you talking about? Motherhood is not hard at all. It is very simple. She wakes up. She colors by herself silently for three hours. And then we have lunch. And then she takes a three-hour nap. And then we have dinner. And then she plays outside very quietly by herself. And then we go to bed. I don't understand your issue with motherhood. Um... Motherhood, in my mind at that time, with four-year-old Eden, was simple. It was very simple. I was very proud of my mothering skills. I, I thought if there was one thing I'm doing right in life, oh, I can, I can do this. It's mothering. And then I had Winnie June. Um, Winifred, who is a mess right there right now. I'm sorry, everybody. Winifred made motherhood 
far less simple, as you can see. For the first five months of Winnie's life, she had severe colic, like severe colic. So she cried incessantly, which means I cried incessantly. These are the rules of children, right? Then around nine and a half months, we really began to see Winnie's personality, which we all know what that means, right? Like you've seen it. So she started walking very early at nine and a half, ten months. And walking is relative for Winnie. I think she started out at a sprint. Um, even from being an infant, she started out running. I think her first steps were just straight run. And she hasn't slowed down since. And I currently spend half of my life trying to ensure that she doesn't drink bleach and that when she wanders away that she comes back and that in the chaos of this life that she is creating that I am her constant. Does that make me a good mother? I don't know. But does it matter? I am a mother, and I know that. I am a mother. Was Jochebed the pinnacle of motherhood? I don't think so. She was doing the best with the hand that she was dealt, and so am I, and so are you, and that's enough. It's enough. It's more than enough. Mothering is seeing the chaos and the joys and the pain of life and choosing to insert ourselves there. We have to insert into this conversation at this time, Batea into our narrative. Batea is a name that doesn't show up in our canon in and of itself, but it does in Jewish scripture. We know her, we personally know her as Pharaoh's daughter, but I wanted us to all recognize her personhood this morning and use the name that the Jews give her, and that is Batea. Batea is not Moses' biological mother, she had no evolutionary need to rescue that child. She had, she, had no, um, she had no business doing it, probably. It wasn't her child to take up out of the water. She could have left him for dead, as was the law, and she chose not to. But just like the Quaker minister, Reverend Mott, she recognized that sometimes laws don't matter when you are doing what is right and what is just and what is true. And just like Jochebed, Batea chose to be a mother. She chose to insert herself into chaos and joy and pain, even though she had no obligation, zero obligation. And then, at that point, Moses found himself with more than one mother. And through virtue of the church and this standard of motherhood, I too have often found myself with more than one mother. When I was 18 years old and I was a senior in high school, I had an interim youth pastor who impacted my life in a very significant way. She was a woman, not much older than I am. Um, I think I was 18 and she might have been 21. She was not much older than me, uh, but she chose to insert herself into the chaos of my life and she chose to mother me. For the last 15 years of my life, different women at different times have come alongside of me and have walked with me and have carried that torch. And when I look across this room this morning, I see a group of women 
that still mother me. Whether older than me or younger than me, whether with biological children or no biological children, I see women that continually mother me. When Maxine drops by my house and brings me baked goods and listens to my problems, she mothers me. When Amy trusts me enough to drop her kids off and leave them with me and trust me enough to minister to them, she mothers me. When, when Sherry takes my kids and holds them when I can't and helps me when I can't, she mothers me. The church mothers us. Women that sit with me in my grief and correct me in my error and gently call me back home when I have wandered, they mother us. See, the reality of it is, is that Winnie is difficult for me to parent because she is bold and reckless and dangerous and prone to wander. But so am I. She is me. She is me, because y'all know she didn't get rebellion and boldness from Corey. Um, she is me. And if it wasn't for the church that mothers me, I don't know where I would be. A third century bishop once said, his name is Cyprian, he said, no one can have God as his father if he does not have the church as his mother. The church holds us. The church brings us back to center. The church inserts itself into the chaos of our lives. And I know for some of you, Mother's Day is beautiful, and it is happy, and it is joyous. But for some of you this morning, I know that it is not. If you are missing your mama or your baby in heaven, if you are struggling with miscarriage or infertility, if you have a distant and contentious relationship with your mother, I know that today is hard. And I know that you probably feel lonely and distant and in pain. But I want you all to know this morning that you are seen and that you are not alone. That you have a group of believers in your midst that want to insert themselves into your chaos and sit with you there. Today we thank God for the women that mother us, both the ones we call mama and the ones that chose to be present. For the ones that chose us and for the ones that we are choosing, we thank God. But we also thank God himself for mothering us as well, for stepping into our chaos and sitting with us at our most vulnerable times, for holding us, for correcting us, and showing us how to love. In the New Testament, Jesus at one point says, I wish I could draw all of you close to me like a mother hen under her wings. And in that moment, Jesus is conveying to us the same thing that we have just been talking about. Jesus wants to mother us, to hold us close, to insert himself into our chaos, and to not let us go. Jesus wants to be present, and the church's mother is present as well. Let us pray.